You're listening to the Sermon Podcast from Real Life, reaching the world for Jesus one person at a time. Right. Good morning, Real Life family. How we doing? So thankful that you're here with us this morning. Uh, Pretty good job getting in here on time. But I just want to ask you, like, did you prepare yourself this morning? Were you prepared? Were you on time? And did God show up for you? Like, these are things that aren't going to go away just because we're done having a worship series. Like, this is the difference maker for us. And we believe that when we worship correctly, God's going to break through in really powerful ways, not just in your life, but in the lives of our, the community of our church. And so we're really excited to experience that. I asked my youngest daughter this morning, I was like, hey, we were on our way out the door. Hey, did you prepare yourself this morning? She said, no, I got mad. <laughs> I said, why? Because the back of my hair won't curl. And I was like, well, you know, hashtag 12-year-old problems. They're like, that's a real... We're going to have to prepare you. You're going to have to, because we got church coming. Anyway, glad to, glad you're here. We are starting Lent this week, and we've never done Lent before as a church. I know that um, I didn't grow up doing Lent. Lent means a lot of different things to a lot of different people. My dad, even though we never did Lent when I was growing up, had this running joke, like, hey, you gave it up for Lent? <laughs> like, dad, it's August. It's not even Lent. Um, like that was one of the things that happened in our home a lot. So for, for some of us, Lent is just like a passing joke. For some of us, Lent is that thing that we did as a kid that was like, oh my gosh, we got to eat fish on Fridays or whatever. Uh, you took it real serious. Um, for some of us, Lent has some really deep-seated, like really transformational tradition to us. And so we come from this, uh, to this from all over the map. And, and what I want to do is kind of set the mood for where we're headed with our Lent season. Lent is traditionally a time it's uh, seven weeks, so it's 40 days, it's 49 days or 47 days minus the Sundays, I think is how it works out. I, do You do the math on it. Um, but the Sundays don't count, so this is a free day, so whatever you gave up for Lent, you can have, uh, which is nice. Some of you are like, I gave up sugar, <laughs> I'm going to make up for the last week. Uh, caffeine, some of you gave up caffeine, some of you gave up games on your phone, some of you gave up social media, lots of different things that people give up for Lent. That's all wonderful. But the idea of Lent is that we take a season to intentionally lay things down that we usually use to indulge ourselves for the purpose of experiencing the power of laying things down so that we understand even deeper, the power of resurrection. And this, is a, this is a season that leads us into Resurrection Sunday and this taking a step down and laying down our own comfort in some way really helps us to be able to experience resurrection in a new way. And so that's the idea of Lent. During this season, a lot of people find um, ways to serve other people more um, because we want to put other people first and put ourselves less, kind of the idea of John the Baptist, he must increase and I must decrease. Like we want to make a, a season where we intentionally do that. Also, for, for many people, a tradition of Lent is that we... Um, become more generous in some way, sometimes covertly, sometimes overtly, sometimes in the church, sometimes other places, doesn't really matter. But this is a season where we really work at putting ourselves behind other people and helping serve and be more generous and give things up so that we can understand what it means to lay our lives down so that on resurrection day, we 
have an extra special party. And resurrection this year for us is going to be at Beasley Coliseum. And so we're going over there. We've had a lot of people ask us, why are we going over to Beasley Coliseum? We have a building. Well, let me give you a couple of reasons. Uh, There's a lot more reasons, but I'll give you a couple. Number one, um, because for our 10-year anniversary, our Pullman campus came over here and celebrated with us. And so for Easter, we can go over there and celebrate with them, right? Which... It's novel, right? It's a crazy idea. I don't know if you guys know this. Some of you do, some of you don't, but we're one church with two locations. And so we're going to go over there and celebrate with them. But the other thing is I want to stuff as many people in one room as we possibly can. And Beasley's the only one big enough. Here's why. Because this message of resurrection is a message worth shouting, not worth whispering. And so we want to be able to make it, and it's going to be big, and it's going to be awesome. I'm so excited about Beasley this year. And so that being said, what I will, what I will invite you to consider is we need 201 volunteers to make Beasley happen. Some of those are uh, for children's ministry, which is awesome. And children's ministry has all kinds of places. If you want to plug in and surf, it has all kinds of places that are awesome. Some of them are holding babies. Some of it's jumping in bouncy castles. Like I could do that for an hour. Actually, I could probably do it for about 10 minutes and then take a break and just make sure kids don't kill themselves. But that, like that's, the, that's one. I mean, there's runners to help get kids connected to their families. It's going to be a big deal. There's also like parking attendants, ushers, greeters, servers. There's, a, there's like lots and lots and lots of places for people to serve. Super excited about that. On your way out at the special event area, which is the room with the two garage doors, you can sign up for that if you want to plug in somewhere. Now, here's what we know. What we know is that um, a lot of our people who are volunteering are not going to be able to participate in our Easter service, which is a big deal because we're only having one service. So here's what we're going to do for you. On Saturday night, we're going to have a special VIP service for you. Now, you cannot come to it if you don't volunteer. We will kick you out. Like, you're going to have to tell me. And if you go, like, I'm volunteering, and then you don't show up on Sunday morning, I'm going to hunt you down burn your house down. I won't burn your house down. I might kick you in the leg and run away, though. Something, something. I'm going to think of something. But that VIP service is that VIP service is for our volunteers. It's for our volunteers, and you guys are going to get a real special treatment. We're going to treat you really well for that service because we know that you are sacrificing a lot so that the gospel of Christ can be preached well. And, and, and here's what I want to want you to know: like the gospel of Christ, yes, it's about Jesus giving His life on the cross, but it's also about the fact that He conquered death for you, and you have hope and freedom and healing through the power that raised Jesus from the dead. And that's the message we want to proclaim on Easter. And so thank you for in advance. For those of you that are going to volunteer, thank you for helping us preach that message. We want to treat you guys right the night before. But on your way out, you can get signed up for that. Okay? So with that in mind, we're going to go through week one of our Lent series, seven-week series. We're going to work through the final week of Jesus's life. And so each week, we are going to take one day because there's seven weeks and there's seven days and it works really well. These things we think through, so creative. Actually, this is a very traditional way to do Lent. It's a very traditional way to do Lent. And so we want to work with this beginning in day one of the week. And we're going to start in Luke chapter 19. Let's begin reading. And after Jesus had said this, he went on ahead, going to up to Jerusalem. 
And as he approached Bethphage, which means house of the fig, this is an important place. There's a lot of fig trees there, hence its name. Also the place where Jesus curses a fig tree. So we're going to talk about that later. As he approached Bethphage and Bethani, which means house of the dead, it's a leper colony. So you pick which village you want to live in, house of the fig or the house of the dead. Um, At the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples saying to them. Now, before we get into what he said, I want to set the stage so that we're all good. I want to show you some pictures. Let's look at some pictures. This is the Mount of Olives. And all of that hillside, this is the nose of the Mount of Olives. All of that hillside is a cemetery. Uh, These graves have been there since before the time of Christ, and they are there mainly because the tradition is that when Messiah returns or comes, whether you're Jewish or Christian, his feet will will touch down first on the Mount of Olives. And so these people, when they died, want to be really close to where Messiah is going to show up so that when he does, they can be the first ones out of the ground. Right? Now, this is absolutely the truth. The higher you go up the hill, the more valuable the grave spots are because you're closer to where Messiah is going to put his foot down. True story. That's the truth. Now, if you'll notice, there's a kind of a brick wall that kind of weaves its way down through there. That's a road. And it's really interesting that road is there with the walls up because this is the road from Bethphage and Bethany to Jerusalem to the Temple Mount. This is the road there. And so you walk this road, they put the walls up because if a Jew touches a grave on purpose or accidentally, they're unclean for seven days. Now think about this. If you come to the, to the temple to celebrate and you touch a grave and you're unclean, you might as well turn around and go home because you can't So they put these walls up to protect you. So let me show you another picture. This is the road that actually, this is the road on the Mount of Olives. You can see the Temple Mount in the distance. You see the the Dome of the Rock there. And off to its right, what looks like a bricked-in gate, that's the eastern gate. And that gate is the gate that when Messiah comes, when he ascends to the Temple Mount, that's the gate he's supposed to go through. And so the Arabs, when they got control of the Temple Mount, immediately put a cemetery in front of the gate with no road, because if a Jew touches anything dead. They can't go under the Temple Mount. And then they brick the door in. To which we go, do you really think that that will stop Jesus? To which they respond, it's worked so far. So that's absolutely the truth. That's the conversation that swirls in Jerusalem, really. Uh, and so that, this, this road we know is square inch, the road that Jesus rode his donkey on. Here's how we know that. A few years ago, they had to tear the asphalt up to do some repair work. Now, on one side of the wall is graves. On the other side of the other wall, that was also graves. When they tore the road up, guess what they found? No graves, which means it's always been a road. This was a road before the time of Christ. This is the only road down the Mount of Olives from Bethphage and Bethany, and it's the road that Jesus walked, rode his donkey down when he came into Jerusalem. If you ever come to Jerusalem with me or come to Israel with me, we'll walk this road. You, you square inch where it happened. That's kind of cool. It's one of the few places where we know like this is where it happened. This is where it did happen. Now I want to show you one more picture. Next picture. There it is. El burro. There he is. The donkey. This is exact representation of what Jesus would have ridden in. Now, the question is, 
Why? Why would he have ridden a donkey? And we're going to get to this in a second, but I want you to have this visual here, and we're going to continue with what Jesus said to his disciples. Go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untie it? Say, the Lord needs it. I want you to put yourself in the story here for a minute, because apparently Jesus' followers steal things. That's the moral of this story, right? (laughs) This is weird. This is a weird story. So let's read on. Those who were sent ahead went and found it just as he told them. And as they were untying the colt, the owners asked, what the heck are you doing? Why are you taking our donkey? Why are you running away with a burro? That's the Hebrew. (laughs) Sometimes they cross. The words cross. They replied, the, Lord's need, the Lord needs it. And they brought it to Jesus, threw their colts on it, on the colt, and put Jesus on it. What in the world is going on here? Let's put the picture of the donkey back up. There he is. Why is Jesus riding a donkey? Well, there's a couple of layers to this. One of them I'm particularly more excited about than the other. There's a cultural layer where when a king enters a city, now think about this and be clear about it. Jesus is claiming to be a king and that is the thing that will get him killed. Remember that when, when you ask somebody, why did Jesus die on the cross? Like, yes, from a theological doctrinal perspective, there's the sin issue and all of that stuff, the shedding of blood, the atonement, all this. Yes, 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 yes. But from a historical issue, why does Jesus get hung on the cross? What's the charge against him? King of the Jews. That's the thing that's written above his head. He gets killed for being a king. His message of the kingdom is the thing that gets him crucified. Be clear about that because a king entering a city matters. How they come in makes all the difference. If a king is ready to go to war, they're exercising dominance. We believe we're stronger than you. Then he will always ride on a horse that is white, a noble steed, If he wants to come in and make terms of peace, we're equals. He will always ride on a donkey. Jesus is making a statement about the kind of kingdom he wishes to usher in. It's a kingdom of peace. It's not a kingdom of power and authority and dominance. That is not the kingdom that Jesus is ushering in. He's ushering in a kingdom of peace. And we know this because he's going to go on to say, if you only knew what would bring you peace... This has been his desire from day one. Everybody in the, in the land of Israel wanted peace. They wanted a kingdom. They wanted it by overthrowing Rome. And Jesus is saying that's not how we get there. That version of power doesn't work. But here's another layer to it. Think Hebrew Bible-ish. Why is Jesus riding a donkey? It's always in the text. Yes. I've been able to say this for a while, and I'm super excited about it. It's 
always in the text. Why? Because Jesus is the living word. Everything that he does and everything that he says is in the text. It's always in the text. Check this out, Zechariah 9.9. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. What are they going to do in Jerusalem right now? They're going to be shouting, see your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly, and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Shut up. And you can say, well, you know, Jesus is just fulfilling prophecy. Yes, like, yes, he is, but he's making a statement about who he is and the kind of kingdom that he wants to usher in. And what he's trying to say to these people is, there's only one kingdom. You can try all these other ways to get peace, but they will never actually deliver. There's just one kingdom. And by the way, he's going to go on to say, and there's only one way to access it. Let's read on in Luke 19. As he went along, the people spread their cloaks on the road. And when he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles that they had seen. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. And that sounds really, really cool. Why does he use that metaphor? It's always in the text because everything that he does and everything that he says is in the text. Check this out. Habakkuk. Habakkuk. Habakkuk a coffee. (laughs) Woe to him who builds his house by unjust gain. You should probably underline that in your notes because we're going to come back and talk about it. Setting his nest on high to escape the clutches of ruin. You have plotted the ruin of many peoples, slamming your own house or shaming your own house and forfeiting your life. The stones of the wall will cry out and the beams of the woodwork will echo it. What are we talking about house and this house and all this stuff? Now, let me tell you what's going on. Jesus is making an indictment against the priests. How do we know that? Because what's the first thing he's going to do? He's going to go to the temple and start turning tables over. We'll get there. Here's what's going on. The Sadducees, who were the priests at the temple, don't believe in an afterlife. They don't believe that there's anything after you die. Now, I want you to think about this for a second. Israel is a theocratic society. They're a God-governed society. If you are the, the instrument of the God to the people and you don't believe there's anything after this life, what are you going to try to do? I'm going to get all that I can. Why? Because God is good to those who are good and he's bad to those who are bad. So let me show you how good God is to me. I'm going to take advantage of you. And what was happening is the temple was absolutely morally bankrupt. They were taking advantage of people. They weren't dispersing the the monies and goods as they needed to be. It wasn't supposed, it was supposed to be this light to the whole world, to all the nations. And it wasn't any of that. 
It was a mess. They're building their own huge homes, indoor plumbing in the first century, hot and cold running water. In the first century, while other people, even other priests who are done with their service are starving to death because the temple isn't taking care of them the way they should. Now, here's how it works. There are three holy days that you're supposed to celebrate only in Jerusalem. And if you're part of what's called the diaspora, the diaspora means the Jews that were scattered all over the world from the different persecutions. If you're one of those families that were out there, you're probably only going to come to Jerusalem once in your whole life. And if you're going to do it, you're going to do it for one of these three high holy days. It's Sukkot, Pentecost, and Passover. Now let's say that you go to Passover. By the way, that was the wrong order. I'm sorry for those of you that are like, that's out of order. Let's say you're going to go to Passover and you've got to travel a long way. You have to plan this for multiple years. You're saying no to things so that you can save money. And your kids are asking, why can't we have this? Why can't we do that? Why can't we go? Why can't we spend this money here? Because we're saving. We're saving because we're going to Jerusalem. What's Jerusalem? Oh, Jerusalem. It's God's city. It's the holy city. God lives there. Like, yes, God is everywhere, but God lives. He dwells in Jerusalem. And we're going, oh, kids, you should see it. Oh, it's beautiful. We're going to take you there. But we've got to save this money. You're planning this forever. Now in the springtime, when your sheep's, your sheep's, give birth, you have to pick a lamb that you're going to sacrifice, right? And that lamb has to be without spot or blemish, a yearling lamb. And so you've got to plan this for a year. And so when when your sheep give birth to the lambs, you select one that's perfect and it moves in the house with you because you're not going to run the risk of something happening to it and then you're not able to make the journey All these years you've been putting this together, all these conversations you've been having with these kids about, oh, oh, wait till you see it. It's the most beautiful thing on earth. And so the lamb moves in with you and it eats with you and they, the kids name it and they pet it, they bathe it every day and it sleeps. It's not going to sleep on the hard floor. This lamb's sleeping in the bed with you. That's the way it is because you're going to take care of this lamb. This is God's lamb. And the day finally comes for you to take the journey and the dad will put the lamb on his shoulders because you would never risk the lamb splitting a hoof on the way to Jerusalem because the whole trip would be off. You might as well turn around and come home. Now, as these clan groups that are traveling begin to merge together, coming, converging on Jerusalem, there are six gates that you can enter Jerusalem through. And at a certain point, the patriarch of the different clans begins to sing worship. And as the groups converge, the worship gets louder and louder and louder and louder. Now, let me give you a perspective. Josephus says that 250,000 lambs were slain in one day. Torah says that one lamb is good for up to 10 people, which means two and a half million Jews plus Gentile slaves and non-practicing Jews all converge on Jerusalem for one day. Think 
about the worship. As it echoes out the Tyropian and Kidron valleys. This is magnificent. This is God's place. This moment is the culmination of years of conversations. Like it's a frenzy. The first thing you have to do when you enter the city is you've got to go do mikvah, the ceremonial washing of what we do in order to make ourselves clean to get on the temple. Now, every mikvah in Jerusalem is owned by the Sadducees. Guess what they do? They charge you money. How much do they charge you? Much as they want. What are you going to say? No, if you don't do mikvah, you don't get on the temple mount. And if you don't get on the temple mount, you don't worship God. You've been planning this for years. What do you do now? Now, here's the cool thing about the Sadducees. They believed that there was not to be any graven image on the temple mount, not one of any kind, which included coins. And so the temple had its own currency. They wouldn't, ex- they wouldn't take your currency as payment because it had an uh, image of the Caesar on it or the image of somebody that's really important or a god or a goddess or something like that that it had on it. And so we didn't want to have any graven images, which the irony of that is when they asked Jesus, should we pay taxes to Caesar or not? And he says, well, give me a coin whose image is on it. Where is he standing? He's on the temple mount. Which is like, okay, wait a minute. That's such hypocrisy. But these people, these temple officials, these priests, these Sadducees, so kind, they'll exchange your currency for theirs, for temple currency. Of course, they're going to gouge you tremendously on it. And guess what? Good news. When you leave, nobody will exchange coins in the Roman Empire without some sort of an important image on it. So they're so kind, they'll exchange it back. But guess what the exchange rate is? Like they're gouging and gouging and gouging and gouging. And to make matters worse, this lamb that you have so cared for your entire life. You've been preparing for this moment. The priest has to inspect it. Now, they don't inspect it in public. Of course, they wouldn't inspect it in public. They take it back into a back room. And what they were doing is they would reach up under the rear flank and they would pinch and twist it and create a big welt in there. And they would bring it back out and they would say, man, we really see that this lamb, I mean, you obviously, you really care about God because for them, following the rules isn't legalism. Following the rules for them is God gave us 613 laws. This isn't legalism. This is 613 ways that God said we could love him. And so if I'm going to bring a lamb, I'm not just going to bring a lamb. Like I'm going to bring the best lamb. I'm going to bring the healthiest lamb. I want to give him because I want to show God how much I love him. So they bring the lamb. Oh, obviously you care about this lamb here. But the problem is, as I was inspecting him, there's this big welt, which is probably only there about 15 minutes, long enough for him to have this conversation with them, this welt here. I mean, we can't, it has a blemish. We can't. But good news, never fear. I have this pin of pre-certified sheep, pre-inspected that you can buy. How much are they going to charge for those? Whatever they want. And so this thing that was supposed to be this incredible experience of God 
turns out to be this miserable experience that we wish we never were even a part of. That's what the temple was doing, trying to believe that it was the accumulation of wealth that would make them happy, that would give them peace. And it didn't work. Jesus is going to go on to say, if you knew what would bring you peace, he weeps over Jerusalem. But he says here that the stones will cry out. I want to show you one more picture. These are the stones of the actual temple at the bottom of the Temple Mount today. When archaeologists dug this out, they left it as a reminder of what it means to pursue the wrong kingdom. Ultimately, in the end, you can give your energy to anything that you choose. But if you choose not to engage the one kingdom, even the rocks will cry out of what your kingdom leads to. There's just one kingdom, and there's only one way to access it. And I want to share one more passage of scripture that isn't in your notes. And this is from uh, Numbers chapter 14. And this passage of scripture is actually really cool to me. So if you remember, when... um, the Israelites come out of Egypt, they're slaves, and they come out of Egypt, and they go immediately to the promised land, like right away, and Moses picks 12 spies to go into the land to spy it out, into the land of Canaan, one spy from each tribe. If you remember, if you grew up in church, you probably remember the song, what did they say when they spied on Canaan? 10 were bad and two were good. That's how I learned this story, it was in junior church. We didn't have anything cool like life or kids. We had junior church. That's what we had. We're like, I don't like senior church. I'm really not going to like junior church. Life or kids sounds rad. I want to be a part of that. Anyway, so they go in and they come out, and Joshua and Caleb are the only ones that are give a positive report. The other 10 give this really scary report, like the, the land is fortified and the people are huge, and it's a land that devours people that try to inhabit it. And they stir up the entire nation, and everybody's grumbling and panicking and freaking out, and God comes down and he sits to the, at the entrance to the tent of meeting, and he says, how long do I got to put up with these people? How many signs do I have to give them to prove that if they'll just trust me, I'll work it out? Just do what I'm asking you to do and I'll show up and do more than you could do in 100 years by yourself. I'll do it in 60 seconds. Because that's God. And so I want to pick up the story there and I want to show you something really interesting. So the men Moses had sent to explore the land who returned and made the whole community grumble against him by spreading a bad report about it. These men who were responsible for spreading the bad report. I want to make sure that you get this. They're the ones responsible for spreading the bad report. Spreading the bad report, the bad report that they spread. Um, They were struck down and died of a plague before the Lord. Of the men who went to explore the land, only Joshua, the son of Nun, which I love. (laughs) There's so many layers that this is funny at. Like, I am the son of Nun. No one is my parent. I'm the son of Nun. The other thing is, like, look at the way it's spelled. Joshua, the son of a nun, which if you think about it, is actually pretty funny because they don't. Nuns don't have children. I, Joshua is the son of a nun. <laughs> I think that's funny. And Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, survived. 
When Moses reported this to all the Israelites, they mourned bitterly. So Moses tells everybody what happened, and the whole nation is like, oh my goodness, we blew it. We need to make it right with the Lord. What do we do when we do that? We repent. So they get this great idea about how they're going to repent. Early the next morning, they set out for the highest point in the hill country saying, now we are ready to go up to the land the Lord promised. Surely we have sinned. Which, by the way, this is a great lesson to learn. Just because you repent of your wrongdoing doesn't mean that you don't have to live in the baggage that you created. That's an important lesson. It doesn't mean God's angry with you. That means that he loves you enough to experience the results of our choices even when we repent. He's not mad about that. It's just true. But Moses said, why are you disobeying the Lord's command? This will not succeed. Do not go up because the Lord is not with you. You will be defeated by your enemies for the Amalekites and the Canaanites will face you there because you've turned away from the Lord and he will not be with you and you'll fall by the sword. Nevertheless, in their presumption, they went up towards the highest point in the hill country, though neither Moses nor the Ark of the Lord's Covenant moved from the camp. So they're like, no, 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 we got this. We'll just go up into the hill country and make it right with God. And, God, and Moses is like, that's a really bad idea. No, it's good, we'll do it. They even, they're trying to engage God's kingdom their own way. It doesn't work. And then the Amalekites and the Canaanites who lived in that hill country came down and attacked them and beat them down all the way to Hormah. Moses said it would happen. You cannot do God's things your way and expect God to show up and bless you. There's only one kingdom and there's only one way to access it. And with that in mind, we're going to move towards the Lord's table. Every week we take communion together. So for those of you that are new with us, we have an open table. Anybody who's willing to celebrate the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus with us is invited to partake in it. But we want you to hold the elements till the end, and then we'll take them all together. While they're passing that out, I want to work through some implications here uh, that tie this back around to Lent and kind of maybe some things that we should be thinking about throughout the week. Implication number one. Lent is a season of reflection that invites us to consider what parts of us need to die so that something much better can come to life. What parts of us that we think will bring us peace, what pursuits, what energy, what thoughts, what things are we doing, giving ourselves to, whatever, that really is just us trying to get God's blessing our own way. And I think that's a point of reflection for all of us. Next implication. It is often the case that we want the right things, but we want to acquire those things in the wrong way. And I've had so many people say to me over the years, I'm mad at God because I was off doing my own thing and God didn't protect me. Well, here's the thing. God did protect you. He told you don't do that. If you choose to step outside of his protection, that's not his fault. 
Yes, God still loves you. He'll forgive you. Things will move on. Everything will be okay. Yes, 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 yes. But you can't do things your own way and expect God's result. My dad used to say this to me all the time. Right thing done the wrong way becomes the wrong thing. You can have the noblest of intentions, but if you're doing it your own way, it doesn't work. What works is when we do God's things God's way. This is the book of Romans, right? The acts that lead to death lead to death. Whether you want them to or not is of no consequence. Acts that lead to death lead to death. Acts that lead to life lead to life. It's just the way it is. Next implication. At the end of all things, there will only be one kingdom remaining. If we pursue what we perceive to be the right kingdom using the wrong methods, we didn't have the right kingdom to begin with. And that's really important for us to grapple with. Maybe the season of Lent, uh, maybe we need to spend some time reflecting on the fact that do we want the right things, but we're trying to go about getting those things the wrong way. L- last implication. What kinds of things could come to life in you this resurrection season if we put to death our desire for worldly power, comfort, and privilege? What if rather than chasing security, rather than chasing um, the ability to emotionally and spiritually bubble wrap our lives, what if we took the bubble wrap off and laid ourselves bare before the throne of God and said, have your way, whatever you want wherever you take me, whatever that means. Whatever I have to say yes to, whatever I have to say no to, it doesn't matter. Because Jesus' promise says, this kind of living, access to this kingdom, is the only way that we will ever really have peace. But it begins not with pressing my own agenda, it begins with laying my own agenda down. Which is what communion is really all about, right? It's this invitation for us to lay our lives down just like Jesus did. This is a reminder that on the night he was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it and said, this is my body which is given for you, so whenever you eat this bread, do it in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after the dinner, he took a cup and he said, this cup, it's a new covenant in my blood which is shed for you. So whenever you drink this cup, do it in remembrance of me. Let's pray. God, thank you for the promise of peace. Thank you for the doorway to access it and for the key that unlocks the door. Lord, thank you that you haven't made this mysterious. You haven't made it confusing. You haven't made it uh, complex. Lord, you made it really simple and it's our own ideas and hopes and dreams and agendas that get in the way of that. Lord, give us the courage to strip away everything that hinders us and the sin that so easily entangles and to run with perseverance the race marked out for us. We love you, Lord, in your name. Amen. We hope you've enjoyed this message from Real Life. If you'd like more information on who we are, what's happening in our church, and how you can get involved, visit us on Facebook and Twitter, and visit our website, liferotp.com.